Um, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 133. Uh, last time I was here, we went through Psalm 97. I don't know about you, but I love the Psalms. And it's always a challenge for a guest speaker to spend time waiting on the Lord and to hear what the Lord would have you teach. Um, I think we'll know pretty soon whether this is of the Lord or not. If it's not, just throw it away. And if it is, take heed. Amen. <laughs> All right. So before we get into it, I want to pray. And um, I want to share with you before we actually get into the text, some of the things that the Lord has been putting on my heart of late concerning what's happening in our world today. So, Father, we love you, God. We're blessed to be your people. We're blessed to be here in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, we know that where we gather in your name, there you are in our midst. And, Lord, we welcome you here. We love your word. We love your presence. We love the power and the anointing of your spirit that we're going to look at a little bit more this morning. God, just everything about you is so good. And we need every part of you, God. We want to be more like you. And Lord, I pray for these people that sit here before you this morning, these sheep that you love so much. God, would you please open all of our eyes to see the things we need to see, our ears to be open to hear what the Spirit of God is speaking to the church. And Lord, you know my heart. I don't want them to hear my words. I want them to hear what you have to say. Because God, we know that your word is alive. Your word is powerful. Your word can do anything. And we ask you, Lord, bring new life through the power of your word this day and be glorified in all that is said and done in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right. So before we get into it, I just wanted to share with you a couple of things. And there'll be a lot of scripture in this, but it's kind of current event type stuff that's going on in our world and how I really believe the Lord has been speaking to my life through it all. We look at the world, we look at what's going on in the world, and I'm sure that we all have the, the same thought, what in the world is going on? This is crazy. This is bizarre. We never dreamed that we would be in this place that we are. And you might be saying, you know, what in the world is going on? Well, I can tell you, it's all falling into place rather nicely. <laughs> and you might not agree with that, but the Lord is on the throne. He's in control. He's orchestrating everything. He allows these things to happen for multiple purposes, but he is in control. He's doing it. And so we just rest in that. We rejoice in that. We trust him. You know, throughout history, there has always been, as you read through your Bible, I know you guys do that here at Canal Valley. Throughout history, there has always been men and women who stood on the word of God, believed it, took it to the bank, so to speak, knowing that every good word of God is going to come to pass. And then there's always been those who reject the word of God. And so here we are today. I believe the faithful. We stand on the word. We believe in the word. We know that God is going to bring everything to pass that he has promised in his word. And so as we see the things that are going on in the world today, we kind of examine them in the light of the word of God if we're smart. 
Now Jesus, as you know, he made some pretty radical claims. He said some things that were just really got everybody's attention and even his disciples. I think one of the, one of the hardest things for them to understand was back when they were in the last year of his life, they're walking in the temple. He's teaching in the temple and it's actually the last week of his life. Right before he was gonna be crucified, the whole week he was in the temple teaching the people. And one day when he left the temple, the disciples pointed out to him the buildings and they said, teacher, look at these buildings, how beautiful everything is, the temple. Now, if you had time and you went back and you did a little historical research, you would find out that the temple, this temple that we know as Herod's temple, was very, very magnificent. The renovations and everything that he did to it. It actually was renovated so well, it was more beautiful than Solomon's temple. Now, if you read in Haggai, I believe is the prophet who spoke of this, you remember when Ezra, Nehemiah and them, they came back from the captivity they started to rebuild the temple and there were those who remembered the former temple and those who didn't. The people that saw the foundation stone and everything laid and they were starting to build, they wept. Those people that remembered the former because of what they saw in front of them. But the people that hadn't seen it, they rejoiced. So the Bible says there was a whole lot of weeping and a whole lot of rejoicing. <laughs> there was a lot of confusion. What's going on, you know? But see, in the prophet, he says, God says, the glory of this latter temple will outdo that of the former. And that always intrigued me. Because I read the Old Testament, I read Solomon's temple, it's overlaid with gold. You're walking on gold. The walls are gold. It's engraved. Beautiful. Completely beautiful. And so this new temple, throughout history as Herod renovated it, and you, like I said, if you have time, research it. You will find out that it stood out like a, a pearl in the night shining bright in Jerusalem, how big it was. And so I say all of that because at the beautiful gate, we know that that's where the lame man got healed. Jesus walked past this guy all the time. He didn't get healed until in Acts, Peter and John they raise him up, but it's at this beautiful gate that they are walking out and inside this, they've done recreation of what it looked like from historical uh, facts, from Josephus, from artifacts that are archeological artifacts. They recreated what it probably looked like. It was magnificent. And all of these stones and the decorations and how beautiful it was. Well, that's why the disciples said, Master, look at these stones, these buildings, aren't they beautiful? And then Jesus said to them, I tell you that not one stone here will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now this had to be the most impossible thing that could ever happen. You gotta be kidding me. He's talking about something else, but that is what he said. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him about it when they got over to the Mount of Olives and he began to give them what we know as the Mount, um, at the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. Now, this all actually came to pass in AD 70. I know a lot of you know this. And for those of you that don't, I just say it because see, this was something that Jesus said that was so impossible, but it came to pass. God's word 
will always come to pass. You can take it to the bank. The Lord will bring his good word to pass all the time. So one big thing that's been going on, you've probably heard a lot about AI, artificial intelligence. Well, I can tell you that the AI of today is going to find the same fate as the AI of Joshua's day (laughs) because it's going to get destroyed somewhere along the line. I don't know what the Lord is going to do, but they say, oh man, we need to get a handle on AI or it's going to wipe out humanity. Well, I know that's not going to happen. You know why? Because God says in his word, he's coming back for people. (laughs) He's going to come back and set up his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And there's a lot of scriptures I could use to to come back against that. They're not going to wipe us out. It's not going to wipe us out. And you know what? Even if they're right in what they assume about AI, artificial intelligence, That just tells me that we're all the nearer the Lord's return. I get excited about it. Bring the AI, you know. I I don't think we should be stupid about things, and I don't want you to, to get that from me. But we don't have anything to fear. The Lord is in control. His word is true. If he's coming back for people, there will be people here. Another thing that kind of is exciting to me is the big push for Middle East peace. Uh, Israel is trying to normalize ties with its Arab neighbors and making progress, I might add. So there's a lot of talk about peace in the Middle East. And, you know, Israel is the apple of God's eye. Uh, It's kind of the center of the earth. I know some people kind of get weird in the church. Concerning Israel, they actually think the church has replaced Israel. That's not true. But nevertheless... You know, people kind of freak out. But God says in his word that when they're proclaiming peace in the Middle East, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. It says in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, God says through Paul, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You see, it's going to come like a thief, yes. But to the people, the believers in Jesus Christ that are living in the word, standing on the word, studying the word, That day is not going to come at a time that we're not expecting it. It's like Pastor Dave says, we're living in rapture season. We really are. One of the very next thing, if not the next thing, is that the Lord is going to return and take his people home. And we know that this is going to happen. So they're not only proclaiming and pursuing peace in the Middle East, more so now than ever before, but there's also, of course, those nations that, that want to see Israel wiped out. Now, Iran, obviously, is one of them. And it always amazes me that, you know, there are those nations, there are those people that think Israel is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And then there are those in leadership position, whether here in America or sadly there in Israel, that don't stand on the word of God. You know what? They just don't stand on the word. And the word says what's going to happen to Israel Matter of fact, in Amos, I I often tell people, you know, the strongest nation in the world, it's not America. 
It's not Russia. It's not China. It's Israel. And it's not Israel because of their prowess and their military insight and might and all that. They're no, they're no better off than us. They're sinners just like us. We look at what's going on in Israel and it's pathetic. But God spoke to them. He spoke in prophecy concerning them. And it's his word and it will come to pass. He says in Amos, the last chapter of Amos, it's Amos chapter 9. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds. The mountains shall drip wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord. Now God says, I'm going to bring them back, the captives. I'm going to plant them in their land. They're going to thrive and no more are they going to be uprooted from the land, their land, the land that I gave them. I don't hear one leader in Israel ever stand on that scripture. You know what? Hey, whatever. Why don't they just get up and say, hey, to these other nations, whatever land your God gives you, go ahead and take it. And the land that our God gives us, we're going to take it. Because the word of God says right here, we ain't going nowhere. But you don't hear nobody talking like that. Nobody has the spine. I I don't understand it. Where are the people that will stand on the word of God? Now, there is a really tough thing that's been happening. And it's really, to me, it's just the moral decline that's going on around the world. And I do mean around the world. We see it here in America, in our own hometown. The moral decline, obviously, is just a result that people have turned their back from the Word of God. They're not living in the Word of God because the Word of God renews the minds and the actions change. We see our lives in the light of God's Word and we begin to pursue a living, loving relationship with the Lord. And he has the ability to renew the mind, to transform us and make us into the image of his son. And our actions change. For some, it's quick. For some, it's a long time. Could be years. It was a couple years for me to get out of just drinking and smoking. But you know, he gave me a hatred for it. And when the word of God is cleansing you and renewing you and you struggle and you fall, the question is, what do you do? Do you get up and press on or do you cave in? Do you coddle your sin or do you press on? Because if you coddle it, if you hang on to it and you compromise with it, it'll kill you. It'll bring you down. But if you stand firm in the word of God, you live in his word, he will renew the mind and the actions will change. And often he does that by giving you a sincere hatred for it. He gave me a really sincere hatred for smoking dope, snorting coke, drinking alcohol. And I haven't done it for over 40 years now to his glory by his grace. And you know, it's like Dave says, you can go drop a whole bunch of, I don't know what he would struggle with. I don't think anything. The guy's never done anything. (laughs) He's a unique pastor you got here. But with me, you know, they could dump a lot of cocaine in my driveway or alcohol or whatever, and I wouldn't be tempted by it a bit. I'm just, you know, God has just given me a hatred for it. But the moral decline that is happening in the world, really it just 
reminds us that these are times that Jesus said would happen. We know in the New Testament, in uh, Timothy, it says, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. So we say amen to the word of God. We're living in perilous times. Jesus also said that it would be like the days of Noah. And you know the account that God gives in Genesis concerning the days of Noah? This is what he says about the earth when he's going to pronounce the judgment on it with a flood. He says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Jesus also likened the last days to the days of Lot. And of course, that hits a lot closer to home to the days that we're living in because of the sexual perversion and sin. Jesus said, um, well, Jesus had said it would be as the days of Lot. And we know that uh, in Genesis 18, when God sent the angels down, he came down, had a couple angels come with him, and God stayed with Abraham, and the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah. It says that the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come against, that has come to me. And if not, I will know it. It almost sounds like God doesn't know. Well, you know, that's not it. (laughs) He knows. And he's going down as a witness and a testimony against them that their lifestyle is an abomination to him. It's an outcry that has come up to heaven. And it's so grievous that it brings him down to deal with it. Uh, The sexual sin and stuff that is going on in the world. And sadly, it is so much in the church. The things that I hear in the church, I just shake my head. You know, when it comes to the gay lifestyle, you know what I hate to tell you? It's an abomination. It's a perversion. It doesn't change the love of God for you or for me. But nevertheless, it's not right. You know, this is a sin that the Bible says is against the body. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but who commit who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. This is something that is against our own body. And this big gender thing that's going on, you know, we know there's two genders, there's male and there's female. That's the way God has created it. And so we agree with the word of God. We see what the word of God says. This is like total hate speech. You know, I can say these things and somebody can, you know, pull out a gun and shoot me. Well, go ahead. I know where I'm going. (laughs) But, you know, it's just out of love and concern for people that we speak these things because it's not my word or my opinion. It's the word of God. God says it's an abomination, that it's a perversion. And it's through all this sexual immorality and sin that we have all these STDs that are in the world. Man with beast. All this illicit sex, fornication, and sin. And you know what? This is so grievous that, you know, the Lord is going to rise up in judgment against this. I'm convinced of it. I just don't know when he's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. And this is the last thing out of this that is kind of was heavy on my heart because it came to our attention in one of our home groups that we have in Thousand Oaks here. And it was brought to my attention that there's a place here close by. I won't name the place um, because I don't want anything weird to happen. But um, this place is like five miles from here, within five miles from here. And it's a medical center. 
And there's a lady that I know that actually works there, and she said they were doing two transgender surgeries a day on children within five miles of us. I'll tell you what, I was really, really grieved. And I woke up the next morning and I was in prayer thinking of these things and stuff that's going on in our world. And I was like, oh God, please help. And the Lord often will put a psalm on my heart. As I said, I love the psalms. And oftentimes he just puts a psalm on my heart and he just put on my heart Psalm 37. And as soon as that came into my mind, whether it was my mind or the Lord, I really don't know, but I just thought, I wonder if that's the fret not Psalm. (laughs) That was an important Psalm in Calvary Chapel of Thousand Oaks years ago. I mean, a lot of years ago, way back to the founding pastor when he was here, Fred Nicholas. But the fret not Psalm, I commend to your reading Psalm 37. I commend to your reading Psalm 94. Two Psalms that will speak powerfully to you about the day and age that we live in and what's going on. I'm going to just read the first two verses of Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. So as you go through this Psalm, you realize God's basically saying, don't worry, I've got it in control. And don't worry means don't do anything, doesn't mean that. It means that we should take a stand. We should stand up for what's right in love, proclaim the truth in love, and let God use us as his sanctified vessels to do whatever he wants to do. In Psalm 94, it says, who will rise up for me against the workers of iniquity, against the evil doers? You see, God wants us to be involved. That's why I like God speak, and I don't, I know you guys are involved too. But over there, uh, well, I better not say anything. (laughs) I love the church, been there for 43 years. I've been here since this church first opened. And though I'm not here all the time, this is my home away from home. I know that we're involved. I know that we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about what God's doing. I'm not worried about what's going on in the world, but I'm concerned enough that I don't want to sit back and just do nothing. So we're going to pray and let God lead us through prayer to go out and do whatever he would have us do. All right, now let's get into our Bible study. All right, Psalm 133. That's why I had to do Psalm 133 because it's only three verses. Other other words, we'd be here like Dave said, I could go two hours. No, he didn't. No, I I don't like long Bible studies, especially when I'm teaching. So I'll try to make it short. All right, this Psalm, Psalm 133, is a Psalm of Ascents of David. It probably says that there in your Bible. The songs or the Psalms of Ascents, it is believed in, well, it is believed in different circles that uh, people that had to go up to Jerusalem, uh, all males were required to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem three times a year, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, so, or Tabernacles, what we know as Tabernacles. And so as they would go, they would recite these psalms. The psalms are 
Psalms 120 through 134. And what powerful psalms they are. Now you can imagine, you just stop and think, okay, I'm with my family. We're going to Jerusalem three times a year. Going to take the kids, the wife. We're going to go and we're going to be in the word of God. And we're going to go up to Jerusalem and they're singing these songs as they're making their ascent to Jerusalem. And so it was just a real special time, especially for the kids. They loved it. And the word of God was being spoken and it was doing what it does, renewing the mind, actions changing, people falling in love with this mighty God that we know. And, the, and as you go up there, you go up there to take your sacrifice up there and you're gonna confess your sin and God is going to atone. He's gonna cover your sin and you're gonna give some to the Lord and some to the priest and some to your family and you're gonna sit and eat together after all of this, and then, of course, the, the most beautiful thing of it is your relationship with God is restored. You're now in a right standing with the Father, and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And, and so, you know, just to get a better picture of what was going on when they would go up to Jerusalem these three times of the years, and this is one of those psalms that they would read. Now, I actually wanted to teach out of this psalm the last time that I was here but we kind of had a little bit of a, how should I say it, a little unrest here in the fellowship. And I kind of felt like I don't want people to think I'm trying to, from the pulpit, speak into that and teach into that. And so for that reason, we didn't, we didn't go here. But I've always loved this psalm. It is so short and so sweet and so important. And so we're gonna look at it today. It basically says, I'm gonna read it. We'll come back and go through it quickly. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When I read the word of God, I want to pray. So can we pray again? <laughs> Lord, we love your word. God, we're just thankful that you've taken the time to give it to us. And Lord, the exhortation that we are given here in Psalm 133, the importance of unity among brothers. God, we pray that you would lead us and guide us and teach us through this. Lord, we want to hear your word, God. And we just want to say again, Lord, that we love you and we thank you for it and we trust you, God to speak to our hearts. I believe you already have as we've read your word. Your word is always speaking, always doing something awesome. And so God, we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, the very first thing we see here is the blessing of unity. It says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Behold, that literally means look upon it. Now, I didn't really think too much about this, but I read something Charles Spurgeon said. And he said, I really like what he says. He says, you know, it's a wonder that is seldom seen, therefore, behold it. <laughs> and it is so true. Unity is so important. And you know, the enemy wants to divide and conquer. We know that. His often weapon of choice 
is disunity. If he can put division between the husband and the wife or in the church or in your workplace, it causes big, big problems. We should know very well in the body of Christ the importance of unity. Even Jesus told us that a house or a kingdom divided against itself, it cannot stand. We know that very well. And yet we are exhorted here that we should live in unity, that it is good, that it is pleasant for, for us as brothers and sisters to do that. And I really believe the key to unity is all you have to do is work at it. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to say that in a Calvary Chapel because you know what? We don't believe that we really have to work. You know, it's always something that God is going to do in us and through us, which it is. But nevertheless, we are exhorted in his word. In Ephesians 4.1, it says, Paul says, writing one of his prison epistles, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is a scripture I think every Christian should hold dear in their heart, especially this last part that says we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace because we know the enemy is trying to conquer and divide. There's been so many churches. Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks was divided and split a long, long time ago. As I said, I've been there 43 years. The youth minister and the senior pastor had a falling out and there was a church split. Nothing more really needs to be said, but nevertheless, this was not God's highest this was just something that people allowed to happen because they did not endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the reason to live in unity with one another to endeavor in this is really simple to me. It's just simply because it blesses God's heart. <laughs> Don't you want to do those things to bless the father's heart? He calls you to do it and you know that it blesses him. When I see my kids, you know, living in unity, that thrills me and I'm sure... If you guys ever see it, I know it's rare. <laughs> but if you see your kids living in unity, you're like, wow, what, what's going on? I remember one time when my kids were little, two of my boys were little, they were, you know, maybe five and seven, somewhere around there. We were in the car and they were interacting and getting along good together. You know, like I said, it's a rare thing, but you know, it just really blessed my heart to see them laughing and playing together and having so much fun together. And at that moment, I just really thought of this. I thought, you know, this is how it is, I believe, for the father. When he sees his kids living together in unity, oh, it blesses his heart so much more than it could me. So this idea of, of endeavoring, of course, it, it implies work. Uh, it's one of those, it's actually one of those works that God desires. And as such, he gives us the ability to do it. So if God desires for us to do something and we step out in faith to do it, he then gives us the ability to do it. And he also makes us strong in the stances that we take that would honor him. It's kind of like Pharaoh. We read about Pharaoh, Moses, children of Israel. Moses goes before the Pharaoh, says, hey, Israel is my firstborn, my son, my firstborn. 
let him go or I will kill your son, your firstborn. Those are the first words that Moses spoke to Pharaoh before there was one plague. I'm telling you right up front, bro. Israel's my son, my firstborn, let him go. And if you don't, I'm gonna kill your son, your firstborn. And so we read through that story and we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we think, oh, that's not fair, God. You made his heart hard. But actually, Pastor Chuck, he's really good in explaining that, that there's a play on some Hebrew words there. And literally what happens is when Pharaoh hardened his heart in the way that we understand hardening a heart in opposition to what God has told us to do, God says, okay, I'll make you strong right there. And you know, that's what he does for us as his kids. I'm convinced of it. God, your word tells me I should live in unity, that I should, you know, die to myself. Your word tells me blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt and changes not. God, I'm purposing in my heart, I'm gonna do that. And God says, right on son, right on daughter, I'm gonna make you strong right there. And so when God asks us to do it, he will give us the ability, the strength to do the things that he asked us to do. The Psalm goes on and uses two similitudes uh, for unity here. And I think the reason is because these similitudes help us to understand or to get a better picture of what is being spoken of in the preceding verse, this idea of brothers living together in unity. The first one he uses is, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. So what's special about the anointing oil? How is it similar to unity? That was my question, my thought. And you know, first of all, I wanna say if, you, if we had time, we don't have time, but you can go and you can read about this oil in Exodus 30 verses 22 through 33. And you will find that this oil was a very special oil. There was nothing like it. It was gonna be used to anoint all of the holy things, to anoint Aaron and his sons. And it was not to be made among any of the common people, whatever it was, totally consecrated unto the, to the use of God. There was nothing like this oil. I'm sure that it smelled very good. It was made by a perfumer and you can read all the ingredients that were, that were put in there as they put it together. So there's nothing like this anointing oil that was poured over the head of Aaron. You know, and we also know in the New Testament that the anointing oil of God is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit himself. We know that because we got the whole counsel of God and we get to read the Bible. And so really in context here, it's like there's nobody like the Holy Spirit. There's, there's nobody like the work that he does in and through our lives. We would be lost without the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. We read in John eleven twenty six 26 that he's our teacher. He teaches us. We also read in John eleven twenty 20, or John 14, 26, both of those scriptures, he reminds us. He brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has spoken. And this is one of many reasons it's very important to read the word of God because how in the world is God gonna bring to your remembrance his word that you haven't read? <laughs> now, I know he can do it. <laughs> I just don't think he does it too much. 
But he brings to our remembrance. How many times have you been witnessing or talking or praying? And all of a sudden a scripture comes to your mind. That's the Holy Spirit. He just brought it to your remembrance. The Holy Spirit is our comfort, our comforter. He comforts us according to John 16, 7. He seals us. He puts a seal on your life. He empowers you according to Acts 1, 8. He is a guarantee in your life that you belong to God. He's your seal. He's your guarantee. And he also bears witness according to Acts 8.16 that you are his kids. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. And how does he do that? It could be just as simple as what I just said. He brings something to your remembrance of the word of God at a very important time. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And let that bear witness to your heart that you're his kid. His spirit is bearing witness to you by what he has just done that you belong to him. So all of these things of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does for us, there's just nothing, nothing like it. There's nothing like him. It's just like the, the anointing oil and it's all tying into unity. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like this unity. I don't know if this is the thing making noise. All right, and, and um, Jesus, um, or no, just as there's nothing uh, like the brethren dwelling together in unity, the same uh, for the Spirit of God in this anointing oil that was poured down on the head of Aaron. And if you remember there, it said it didn't just go on his head, right? It went down on his beard and on his garments to the edge of his garments. It was a total and complete covering. You know, today we kind of anoint with oil and we just do a little smear of a cross, you know. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's not good, but I kind of like the idea of just dumping a whole lot on the people. When we were in the prison, actually, I used to take a communion cup <laughs> full of oil and pour it on the girls' heads. And they loved it. And I'm not saying there was anything more special or powerful about that. But you know, the picture that we have here is a picture of the Spirit of God coming over the whole person, just running down on the head, the total full anointing all the way down from the sole of your head or the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, just totally covered in and blessed by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a scripture that says in Psalm 92, he says, but my horn, this is another one you can write down to read later. I know you guys like the word, so... He says in Psalm 92.10, But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. And I really love this scripture. My horn, that is my strength, God. You made me strong like a wild ox. And you've anointed me with fresh oil. I really, really like that. There are those, like if you're a John MacArthur guy or girl here, um, Basically, John MacArthur doesn't believe that, you know, once you, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're good to go and that's all you need, okay? And then there's those like Spurgeon who believes that you need a continual filling and anointing of the Spirit. Now, I personally, I kind of lean towards Spurgeon. I'm not too much into the John MacArthur stuff, though I love, you know, a lot of his commentaries and stuff. But, you know, I remember Spurgeon had shared that there was a lady that had come up to him and said to him, Pastor, why are you always 
talking about the anointing of, of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, woman, we leak. So I don't know if that's your case. That's my case. You can ask my wife and say, dude, you are leaking. You, be, you better go get anointed. You need some fresh oil, brother. And you know what? We want, we want all that God has for us. Lord, I, I oftentimes say, God, anoint me with fresh oil. God, please. God, just do what only you can do. So it wasn't only on his head, but it was a very specific person, Aaron. And we know that Aaron was the high priest. The high priest was a man chosen by God, filled with the Spirit of God to stand before the people of God to lead people into the presence of God. Now, just that mouthful right there is such a good men's ministry exhortation. And I get to serve in a couple men's ministries, <laughs> and I just love this. And I wish, you know, I was, I was speaking about this in one of the men's groups. But you know what? If you're a man and you've been born again, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, God has placed his spirit in you and given you the power of his Holy Spirit that you can stand before his people, and those people can just be your family. We should be leading our families before your, your co-workers and the people that are in the world. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit to stand in the presence of God to lead people uh, into God's presence. So, so, so important. Uh, so it wasn't just anybody, it was the high priest. And we also know, speaking of the high priest, that we have a high priest in the new covenant his name is Jesus. And his priesthood is far superior than the Levitical priesthood. We know that. We read in Hebrews and we see that. And really it's simply because it's all predicated on an endless life. He came. He lived. He suffered and died among us. He knows everything that we've gone through. He can sympathize with our sins and our weaknesses, though he was without sin. He's very mindful of the things that we go, for, go through. And he knows how to come to the aid of those that need his touch and his help. So his priesthood is far superior. It's a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron, the priest we're talking about here in this. And again, that just brings me right back to the thought, there is nobody like Jesus. There is nothing like Jesus children, brothers, living together in unity. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like Jesus. I love to tell that to people. You know, read, we got four gospels. Read through the gospels and get to know Jesus. There's nobody like him. When I first read through the Bible and I, I went through the whole Old Testament, I was so ready for Jesus in the New Testament. <laughs> I really was. I know it sounds kind of funny. I'm reading the life of Jesus going, oh my gosh. How can anybody not see that this man is the Messiah? And people follow Buddha and Confucius and all, all of this false stuff, Muhammad. Dude, get to know Jesus. You're going to find out nobody like him. Nobody else you want to live with, to be with. Nobody like the Lord. And thus, when it comes to the anointing oil of God falling down onto the high priest, the anointing oil coming upon us as his children, there's nothing like it. And that's the way it is when we live together in unity. There's also another similitude used in this psalm. And it says that this 
is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Now, I don't want to read a lot into that. Uh, the mountains of Hermon are, are way up in Syria, come down into the Golan Heights. They vary in height because there's, there's a lot of mountains there uh, from the highest being just over 9,000 feet to the lowest being 7,000 feet. But it says it's like the dew up there descending on the mountains of Zion down here. And so the mountains of Zion are not even 2,500 feet. And so, like I said, I don't want to try to read a lot into this. There are those people that think Jesus was transfigured up on Mount Hermon. We can't, you know, we can't be dogmatic about that. We can't prove that. But what we do know about dew is that it's very refreshing. Very refreshing. Um, this area up there was a very uh, arid area. Um, and the precipitation that would uh, gather up there was was a lot. And a lot of it's just because of the elevation, the range that it's at. And so this water that would gather up there, sometimes it would be so maybe overcast that all of that, it's almost like our marine layer out here, you know, it comes in out there at the ocean. <laughs> and if you're lucky, it gets out here to us in Thousand Oaks, you know. And yet when you're sweltering here, you're like, oh man, it'd be nice to have some of the dew of the marina falling on us over here. You know, it's kind of that same picture, but in very simplicity, what it is, it's a refreshing. It is so refreshing when brothers and sisters are dwelling together in unity. It's definitely a refreshing for the, from the Lord to us. So the last point here where it says, this is the blessing that is given eternal life, life forevermore. For there, where's there? There, where's there? The mountains of Zion. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is really, to me, this is really important because the word of God tells us that it's a command. It's something that God spoke from the mountains of Zion. And the meaning of what was spoke is that there would be eternal life. And so I think, when did God do that? Now, David is the one who wrote this psalm, or that's what we're told here in the text. Um, and David, we know he lived around 1010 BCE. So when did God make this command? Eternal life from the mountains of Zion. Now, I, I'm just gonna share with you what I think, and you can chuck it if you want, <laughs> or you can help me understand better, whatever you like to do. But you know, I think we really get a glimpse of this because this mountain that is there in the mountains of Zion, these mountains in this Zion range up there, we know that that's where the temple was built. And we know that that's where Jesus lived in that area. He lived and he died right there in Jerusalem and he rose from the dead right there in Jerusalem. We know that right across the valley on Mount of Olives that he ascended into heaven while they all watched him go up into heaven. If anybody had doubts about who he was, I think all the doubts were gone then. Can you imagine watching Jesus just go up out of sight? I think God received him. No doubt. He went right on up. But anyway, we get a glimpse of this, I believe, in a prophecy that is given to us by God through Abraham in Genesis 22. 
I'm going to try to make it real fast so we can finish. You remember the story of, Je- of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham offering his son Isaac. In Genesis 22, you can go back and read about it. We know that God takes his son and, and Isaac is like, Father, you know, uh, we have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, in the King James Version, it's, it's translated really well. It says, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so both of them went together. Now we also know in Genesis 22, he went to the mountains of Moriah. These are the mountains of Mount Zion. And God said through Abraham to you and me that God would provide himself a lamb. We know that to be Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in that story, when Abraham goes through to make the sacrifice, God shows up and says, don't do it. Now I know, as if he didn't know, but again, God is just revealing to Abraham what he needs to see and revealing to us this picture, this glorious picture of the Messiah that is to come, that he would be the lamb. And Abraham sees a ram caught in a thicket. I'm so glad it wasn't a lamb. (laughs) Because they would have said, see, there's the lamb he provided. No, it was a ram. Because this spoke further. Now, we get another picture of it um, in 1 Chronicles. I know that's one of your favorite books. 1 Chronicles, at at the end of the book, where David is transitioning out of his rule and his son Solomon is going to take over, um, we know that David is moved by the enemy to count the, the nation of Israel. It's a sin against him. And God goes to him and the prophet and says, I offer you three forms of judgment. You can have three years of famine. You can have three years of being whipped by your enemies. Or you can have three days of pestilence in the, in the land. Now, David said, you know, I, let me fall into the hands of God. His mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hands of man. We know the story. And so the pestilence went throughout the land and the angel of the Lord was striking a lot of people and the Lord said, okay, stop. And then David saw the angel of the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And as you read through that, though, you got to get the whole story. You got to go all the way up into Solomon's reign because he's going to build the temple and he's going to build the temple right there on Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor floor. Matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. These are the mountains of Zion, Mount Moriah, where Abraham took his son, where David saw the angel. And of course, these mountains are the mountains that Jesus died at, at Golgotha. Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull, was there in this Mount Moriah, Mount Zion area there. There's a little bit of speculation. We know it was the place of the skull. They had a rock quarry outside the city area there that very well could have been the place, or it could have been the place that's the bus stop over there today. I kind of think it's probably the place of the bus stop because it really looks like a skull. But nevertheless, it happened right there. And so you remember what we're talking about is there was a command given that there would be eternal life, life forevermore. And even though this was spoken back in history, just like Abraham, 
it was prophetic that pointed us out to Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he said, what did he say? It is finished. You've heard Pastor Dave say, to tell us die. It is finished. It means paid in full. Done. You've been redeemed. Your life has been bought back. The sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. It's finished. Paid in full. Life forevermore. You know, that is truly what I believe the Lord is speaking to us, even though it was written way back in the Psalms of Ascents. God is always speaking his word and pointing us to the future. He, he takes us back. He takes us to the present. He takes us to the future. And every good word of God will come to pass. Everything he has said. So, living, living in unity as brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives, as the church of the living God, is what we are called to do. That's what God is calling us to do. And so many, as I've said, have separated and split up in the families because they can't work it out. Why can't you work it out? You can. God says you can. You just don't want to. And this is what sadly often happens. We don't want to. But God never calls us to do something that we can't do. If he says to live together in unity, we can do it. And he tells us it's something that is really precious and special in his sight. It's in this whole thought process that there we have the blessing, eternal life. God never asks us to do anything that we cannot do. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you, God, and we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the time together. We thank you for Caneo Valley Calvary Chapel. We thank you for Pastor Dave and Lynette and the difficulties, Lord, that they've endured. And we know that you're a faithful God, that you're on the throne, you're in control. We're grateful that you brought Pastor Dave here and the things that he's gone through and the things that you've used in his life to minister to us, Lord, are unbelievable. And yet, Lord, we are so grateful for all that you've done, what you're doing. We look forward, God, to what you're going to do. I know a lot of men were touched and blessed by uh, the ministry of the word through him to them. Lord, I know that you did great and awesome things through Pastor Josh, through your word to these kids. We're just excited, God, to see what you're doing here in Canal Valley. This is your church, God. Would you please give us the ability, the heart, the perseverance, the understanding, whatever it is we need, Lord, that we are going to purpose in our heart, that we're going to live in unity, God, because we know it blesses your heart. We know you call it, you call us to it. And so, Lord, we want to be obedient children in the center of your will. So, Lord, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for Jesus Christ, our, our all. Lord, you finished it. You paid our debt in full. It is finished. Life forevermore. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name.